everyone! Today on Faithfully Memphis, we're bringing you one of our favorite past episodes, originally airing in November of 2020. Join the Reverend Hester Mathis, Senior Associate Rector at Church of the Holy Communion in Memphis, Tennessee, for a conversation with Dr. Stephen Cook, Senior Pastor at Second Baptist Church in Memphis. The two discuss their involvement in interfaith service and worship in Memphis. This weekend, on Saturday, November the 20th, 2021, you're invited to join Holy Communion, Second Baptist, and many other faith communities in Memphis for the Thanksgiving Interfaith Food and Funds Drive. Go to the calendar section of our website, edwtn.org, or check out the Diocese Facebook page for complete information on how you can get involved or donate. Thanks! Good morning, and welcome to Faithfully Memphis. I'm Hester Mathis, Senior Associate Rector of Church of the Holy Communion, one of the churches in the Episcopal Diocese of West Tennessee. And I am deeply honored to host this week's show at Bishop Phoebe's Invitation. Thank you for joining us on Thursday mornings at 8 a.m. on WYXR. Each week, we have the opportunity to interview an interesting person to discover the role of faith in their life. Today, I'm excited to welcome Dr. Stephen Cook, Senior Pastor of Second Baptist, who will be talking about an interfaith collaboration that will be taking place the week of Thanksgiving, following in a three-decade tradition here in Memphis, but gathering in quite a different way this year due to the pandemic. Before we do that, though, I'd like to start off with our first segment, which is a saint of the day. Each week, we highlight a saint of the church, an ordinary person who finds themselves in a situation where they are doing extraordinary things. This week, we celebrated the feast day of Samuel Seabury, the first bishop of the Episcopal Church. A lot of you all might recognize Seabury from his role in Hamilton. If you've seen this Broadway production, Seabury would not be the kind of person you would have picked out on stage to be a saint. He was actually ridiculed and made fun of by Hamilton himself because Seabury was a priest ordained in the Church of England. Part of the ordination vows were to make an oath to the king or queen of England. So therefore, Seabury remained a loyalist through the Revolutionary War, serving even as a chaplain to the revolutionary troops, the British Army. Therefore, this would have put Hamilton and Seabury on quite different sides of the political spectrum. But what I love about this saint is that it shows that we can never quite categorize somebody as completely on one side or the other of a political argument. After the revolution, when America had its independence, Seabury was voted to be the first bishop of the states. However, this meant that he had to go over and become ordained a bishop in the Church of England, which came with a very slight problem to it. This would require that he take another oath to the king, which he could not do at this point. 
Therefore, he went to Scotland, to the Episcopal Church in Scotland, where he would not have to take that oath. And in 1784, he was ordained in Aberdeen in Scotland and became America's first bishop. That is why the American branch of the Anglican Communion to this day remains the Episcopal Church, tying back to our uh, time in which we leaned on our brothers and sisters in Scotland. Now we might all be friends, but this is a fun place to see how that history was born and how it continues to play out in this day. So today we celebrate St. Samuel Seabury. I am lucky to get to interview Dr. Stephen Cook, the senior pastor of Second Baptist this morning, about an interfaith Thanksgiving tradition that has been going on in Memphis for over three decades. So, Stephen, first, uh, would you tell us a little bit about yourself and what brought you to Memphis? Sure. Well, I'm glad to be here and recently just uh, celebrated my 10th anniversary as pastor at Second Baptist. And so it's been a wonderful decade that we've gotten to spend here. From the moment we arrived in Memphis, my family and I felt like we were at home. And that feeling has only grown deeper over these last 10 years. So it's been a terrific journey to get to this point. And part of my story of coming to Memphis is that we arrived right at this time of the year and our church wanted to have a Thanksgiving service. And that ended up being my very first preaching moment at Second Baptist. So we did it with just our congregation having a Thanksgiving service to welcome the new pastor. But I knew that there was this interfaith group that had been working together and that at some points along the way, Second Baptist had been involved with it previously, but I'm not sure how regularly or how consistently that had been happening. In the congregation from which I had come in Virginia, our community had a strong interfaith ecumenical network of congregations that shared together and did multiple services throughout the year in that small town. And so it was really important for me to be able to find some network that I could tap into and some group to which I could belong. So I arrived in 2010. We did our own thing that year for Thanksgiving. But then in 2011, Second Baptist played host to the interfaith Thanksgiving service. And from there, we've been consistent participants ever since. And it's been a wonderful thing for us to be able to connect with local ministry partners and an opportunity for us to deepen relationships and engage with our neighbors that we already know because Memphis is a big, small town in so many ways. And so it, it's a great way for our church folks to be able to interact with their neighbors that they do business with, that they go to school with in so many different settings. And it, it just continues to build and to strengthen our community here. So uh, I'm thrilled that we've been able to see the life and the energy that it has brought not only to our church, but that it seems to bring to the community. That's wonderful. Uh, you know, this group started as a small uh, gathering of different faith communities in East Memphis, and it's grown considerably since then. Why do you think it started uh, centered around Thanksgiving? Well, it's 
low-hanging fruit in terms of interfaith cooperation, right? Because that way we don't have to get into concerns over particular religious traditions that could be exclusive. Thanksgiving being a civic holiday and yet rooted in faith traditions that are common to so many different religious groups allows us to be able to to come together around those things that unite us rather than having to uh, find ways to finagle the the differences that exist between us. And so it, it makes for a great entryway into understanding and exposure to other traditions. And it gives us, I, I just love, you know, when the, when the shofar is, is blown at the beginning of the service or, or when we have the Muslim call to prayer and the year that we were hosting at Second Baptist a couple of years ago and to have any mom in our pulpit being able to do that, that was a remarkable moment for us as a congregation to share that. And, and, practicing gratitude is a part of what's at the heart of all of our common faith traditions. So it's, it's such a rich and meaningful moment and really a remarkable way in the Christian tradition, I think, to set the stage for the season that then comes for us as we immediately move into Advent and our preparations for Christmas. And it's sort of a kickoff to that whole season of the year for us. Absolutely. I mean, Thanksgiving is rooted in coming around a common table from all sorts of different backgrounds and um, areas and traditions right. and cultures. So right. uh, it's it's really been a wonderful way to bring all of that together in common worship and prayer. Um, I can imagine, though, that coming from lots of different faith traditions and cultures and practices that uh, it really lends itself to teachable moments. Do you have any of those that stand out uh, in your time working with this group and uh, worshiping together? Well, I, I, I can think of some positive ones and I can think of some less than positive ones that have Absolutely. come about. But, but part of how we learn is through our stumbling and in some of the mistakes that we make. And even things like uh, where where we've talked about in years past, trying to find ways to bring the different congregations together. And I know you've heard me say before in some of our planning meetings when the clergy get together, and it's usually in the in the early fall that we start that. And and it seems like every year we say, you know, we ought to be doing more together throughout the year. This shouldn't just be an annual thing that happens. And every year we have these great intentions for for how it's going to be different next time, and it never is. Absolutely. Except this year, which yes. I'm sure we'll get to in a moment. But one of the things that I remember going back seven or eight years is some conversation around uh, shared work together, like days of service in the community. And we had a hard time finding a way that we could do that and honor our Jewish neighbors and the Sabbath keeping that is shared in that community, how we can honor our Muslim neighbors and some of the traditions that, that they need to keep. And then we Christians, at least I'll speak for, for my branch of the, of the family tree that we don't honor our Sabbath day or our day of worship 
with quite the same reverence that we should or as some of our other faiths partners in this work. And so it's been a great opportunity to learn about customs and traditions and values and things of that nature. And, and then I also think about some of the worship experiences that we've shared when we've had new people come into the into the fold of participating congregations and to have to have leaders who come and and will explain why they do this particular thing or or what this particular custom is before reading a passage of sacred scripture or before mm-hmm. sharing a piece of music those kinds of things become great learning points so that we can better know our neighbors and and that we don't have to be so unsure or put off by the unfamiliarity of customs and and traditions and and just a great learning point for us and and I've loved as different clergy have have come and gone and moved in and out of the group the the kind of curiosity that gets brought by new people right and and so we we get to revisit the why behind the what of our experiences. And that, that's been really, really rich and rewarding, not just, I think, for the, for the participating worshipers who come to the services that we do, but I know for me as a member of the clergy, it's been a great experience for me to, to know my neighbors better and, and to understand their traditions better. Absolutely. I recall last year our talking about how we had this group of faith leaders And when we gathered together, we had built enough trust with one another that Mm -hmm. we could ask those awkward or maybe uh, those questions that we were nervous to ask in other settings and how we wanted to model that for uh, the people in our faith communities. So we tried something new last year where we gathered people from different communities around tables for smaller group discussions so that they would have that opportunity to share about their own traditions and to perhaps even get to that point where they felt comfortable asking uh, those questions of one another. So, so much of it is just in being able to share our stories and uh, build that trust yes. so that we can learn from one another. Yeah. And making that move that we did in 2019 from after the worship service going to <laughs> a church gym or a, a social hall in, in a congregation space and, and then everyone just gathering with the people that they already know and, and eating light hors d'oeuvres and that sort of thing. Like but, a middle school dance. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so making that shift to where we could then gather around tables and have meaningful conversation and then move from there into worship with one another, that I have that image in my mind of of standing there at the front of the room at Temple Israel where we had gathered last year and the the visual of all of these people around these tables and and the sound of conversations among neighbors and then us having the moment where we stand up and then we all move together into a shared worship space that that's powerful and, and it seems so vital in this season of our life together as, as a community, as a country, globally, 
these these powerful moments of people being able to cross the the divides that so often are so artificial and and, and then to be able to share together around a common center uh, God knows we need that. Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. And we need it more than once a year. But, exactly. <laughs> you know, having this tradition once a year does keep us engaged in this important work. And it keeps us uh, focused on that so that then, um, you know, I, I think of a powerful time when uh, Fievel Strauss, who was at Temple Israel at the time and involved in this, called up and said, OK, I want you to wear your collar and I'm going to wear my yarmulke and I want, you know, anyone to come and I want us to just go to lunch together and right. be a visual in the city of uh, eating together, talking together and uh, wanting to be in each other's company. You right. know, his vision was that we would all end up at Starbucks in the morning and right. <laughs> be that witness <laughs> right. to right. the city of, uh, you know, all uh learning and being engaged and being in relationship right. with one another. Because when you have those times, you can quickly find that there's so much that's holding us together and so much richness in what's unique to each of our absolutely um, experiences. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and since I'm a Baptist, you know, we don't have any distinguishing marks. So I just look like an ordinary guy <laughs> showing up to hang out with some holy people. So it's great. <laughs> and part of that is it's awesome. Um, so in the past, this has traditionally been a Tuesday night worship, the Tuesday before Thanksgiving. Right. It goes around to the different faith communities. So one year we might be at Church of the Holy Communion. Next year at Second Baptist and then at Temple or at the Memphis Islamic Center. Um, so in a year when it became quickly apparent that we would not be able to gather in person safely for worship the week of Thanksgiving, I don't think anybody would have begrudged any of us to say, okay, we're, we're not doing that this year. Right. Why do you feel it was, um, <clears throat> important to show that uh, we were going to continue this tradition, but in a different way. Well, there are a couple of things that I think are really important. One is that now as much as ever is a time for cooperation and collaboration for the healing of the nation, right? And for the healing of the community and the ongoing work of healing and promoting the the good that binds us together. That's mm. vital. Yeah. And, and then when you couple that with the realities of, of where we find ourselves in the midst of a pandemic in this most upside down and unusual sort of year, and when we have so many of our neighbors who have been negatively impacted by this in ways that that go far beyond the inconveniences that you and I have experienced oh, absolutely. because I mean, the reality is we, we sit in exceptionally privileged sorts of places and so many of our neighbors don't have that. Right. And, and if we were to simply say, well, the logistics of trying to pull something together, you know, spending our energy on, on some sort of, 
video edited <laughs> service and then <laughs> counting on people to click on it and watch it. I think, I think what we're doing this year, we've, we've moved from sharing a worship service, which is really important to something that's even more essential, which is to share in community service by doing this food and funds drive that, that we're planning. It provides us the opportunity to, to really put our faiths to work. Right. Worship in action. Exactly. And to be able to bring <clears throat> people together when, when we do the Tuesday night services, with with all the pomp and circumstance of us uh, clergy leaders dressed up in our in our finest you know uh, that's great and and for the worshipers i know that it's a meaningful experience but it's really different when you get to work alongside of your your neighbors from a different faith community different faith tradition and and so we're we're not just asking people to sit and watch us Right. The leadership. Right. But we're asking for people to come and join us in, in the work of serving our neighbors through this, this initiative. So I'm really excited for this, that, that we're moving to something that I think, and you know, we've talked about trying to do something more for a long, long time. And this is one of the, the gifts that the pandemic is giving us. The amount of Food insecurity and the percentage that that is growing in our area due to the pandemic is um, a staggering amount. So uh, one thing that has no divisions in, and right. uh, no differences across faith lines is that we are one community and That's we right. are rallying around the food insecurity that exists in our city and the surrounding counties. That's right. We're, we're at great depression levels in terms right. of food insecurity and, and the need is real. And, and there is more than one pandemic among us. Oh my. And and we need to make certain that we not turn a blind eye to our neighbors in need during this time. Yeah. And, you know, that that's a really important part that we're heading into shorter days, darker days, longer uh, nights and Mm -hmm. the holidays, which can also be hard um, on people who are not able to be surrounded by their loved ones. Uh, that this is a chance for us to show solidarity, to mm-hmm. show that we are here, we are praying for uh, all those in our community. We are rallying around them, and we are going to uh, we're going to fight this food insecurity in That's our right. city. That's right. That's right. So I'm I am thrilled that this has been the the new life that has been given to something that just continues to grow and to and to become better. So I'm excited to see what happens beyond 2020. I'm really excited to get beyond 2020. That's right. But I'm I'm especially interested in seeing how our our interfaith partnerships can continue to grow and what seeds are being planted now that will bear fruit for us in years to come because of this that we get to share now. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for being with us on Faithfully Memphis today. Really appreciate it. Excited to be here. Thanks for having me, Hester. This next segment would normally be Stump the Bishop. I am not a bishop, 
but uh, I am a priest, as is the bishop. And so I am going to have a question today on Stump the Female Priest. One of the questions that I get over and over again is, what do we call you? When I was in seminary, I thought I had this question all figured out. I would go simply by my baptized name, Hester, because I figured if it's good enough for baptism, it's good enough for a title. However, I quickly discovered that there are times in which a title is either appreciated or appropriate. So the question would come about, if the rector of Holy Communion is referred to as Father Sandy, what is an equivalent that we can use for you? Mother tends to make us think of nuns more so than priests, and I am not a nun. Mother Hester also sounds like Mother Hubbard, so I was not going to go in that direction. However, especially when in school environments and working with parents who would like to teach their children about respectful titles when referring to authority, I quickly learned that I needed to come up with something other than just Hester when I was in these situations. So I kind of went back to the drawing book and I thought about how it could be pastor. However, Pastor Hester does not sound right. It rhymes too much. And then I kind of landed on, well, I could go by Reverend. Now, any grammar people out there will realize that grammar tells us that the Reverend and then your name is a written title, not a spoken title when used in the Episcopal Church. It's also always used with the before it. However, new times call for new rules. So I decided that in my case, I would go by Reverend Hester. So that gives me a title to give to parents who want to teach their children about respecting authority. It gives me a title to help um, affirm traditions in schools where the faculty are referred to by title. It also gives me a certain amount of informality because I am still using my first name in that. So I go by Reverend Hester. Again, new days call for the bending of old rules in traditions such as grammar. This has been a really great conversation for me, though, because what I've learned is that that is a title that I have landed on. But different people land on different titles. And some of that has to do with theological grounding. Some of it has to do with the context in which you are situated. And some of that has to do with personal preference and how it goes with your name. So it has to do with aesthetics almost. Um, I have lots of female friends who will go by mother and it works in their context. Um, I have other female clergy friends who will go by pastor. However, what I quickly discovered is that in the Bible belt of Memphis, pastor typically gave a cue that you were in one of the other um, Protestant religions that are a little bit more fundamental. And so it, it typically confused people more than it was helpful. They might think that I was, um, a pastor in the Methodist or the 
Baptist or, you know, one of those um, traditions. And then the collar that I was wearing would throw them off. Uh, Episcopalians find ourselves in that strange space between Catholic, Protestant. We do some of what one group does. We have some of what the other group does. And so oftentimes when we find ourselves in certain context, we find that it will trigger certain assumptions or that it can be a helpful identifier for helping people figure out who we are and what we are. Being a female clergy person, I was laughing when the bishop shared her story a couple of weeks ago about being mistaken for being in costume when she had her collar on on Halloween Day. And uh, that happens to me quite often, actually. Um, and so it really is uh, something that can help people know, no, I am not a nun. I am also not a female priest in the Catholic Church because uh, it is not that day yet, uh, and that I am Episcopalian, and that's why I have on this collar that distinguishes me in my role in that particular way that I lead in the church. So for me, it's Reverend Hester, but for uh, for your purposes, what I would invite you to do is always ask the question. Everyone appreciates being asked, what should I call you? And in my case, I would say, call me by my baptized name, call me Hester. And if you would like a title, call me Reverend Hester. It's been an honor to be your host this week.